Good morning. Good morning. Hello. Am I on? Am I on? Hello. Hello. I can project loudly, but technology has provided a different way. Am I on? Can you hear me? Okay, yeah. How much more obnoxious could I be at the beginning? Welcome to Theological Equipping. My name is Jared Lawson. I'm on staff here. Uh, let me pray before we begin as those out in the foyer make their way in. Father, we love you. Uh, we know that you have not left us in the dark with uh, all these different things, uh, thinking about how to uh, think biblically in a world that has several cultural narratives flying at us about race, about the environment, about all sorts of things. Uh, and so we just pray that during this time we'd be able to see your word, we'd be able to see clearly what you would require of us, what you uh, delight in us doing, that you are a good God, that you've provided uh, a resourceful earth for us to use, to subdue, to care for, uh, and we pray that you would just be glorified during this time. We would see you as more beautiful. We would trust you more and trust your word more. Uh, so we pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen. Okay, so this semester in theological equipping, we have been going over how to think biblically about different political issues. Zach started us off uh, with Christians and government. Last week, Jeff talked a little bit about uh, diversity and racial reconciliation. And today, we're going to be talking about the environment. And I know what you're thinking. I am the least uh, person on staff that should be talking about the environment. It should be Tim, right? Tim used to drive a Prius. Tim is all about what's natural. That's why he doesn't shave. You know, he doesn't want to pollute the environment with razor blades, things like that. But you're stuck with me, so I apologize. Uh, environmental issues is kind of a big bucket. There's things like uh, pollution, air pollution, water pollution, uh, resource depletion, this idea that we're using up all of the resources that the earth has for us. Uh, in, uh, environmental degradation, the, this idea that the way that we're using the earth's resources is kind of destroying the environment so our kids aren't going to be able to use uh, the, those same resources. That's the first kind of element. There's an ele another element of climate change, probably the most hot button of the environmental discussions happening right now, climate change or global warming. And then there's another sector of uh, animal rights, endangered species, things like that. So it's a fairly big bucket. And over the past century, it's become a massive political movement. Uh, because of agricultural and technological advancements, there's this growing fear that we're just destroying the earth by these great advancements. And so it's become a big political issue, which is why we're talking about it. And so rather than debating kind of each one of these and going over statistics and things that I'm not really, I'm not an environmental scientist, I'd rather just give us a, a, a firm foundation of what the Bible says about these things. I want to equip you with a biblical worldview and then we'll go through kind of general assumptions that uh, environmentalists typically make that conflict with that biblical worldview. Okay, sound good? There we go, okay, there we go, okay. I always hated that when the teachers are like, come on, you can do better than that. And you're like, oh, good morning, that's the worst. Okay, let's start with uh, this biblical worldview. Let's look at the first kind of brick in this foundation. Uh, creation, God's creation, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then verse 31 at the end of that chapter, God saw that everything he had made and behold, it was very good. So the first element that we need to look at is God is the creator and therefore everything in creation is his, it belongs to him and it is ruled by him. Okay, so he is the one that gets to tell us how we deal with 
creation, okay? This may seem simple or even pointless, but this is absolutely vital because these issues are incredibly emotionally charged. There's, you're, you're really tempted to go with your gut on a lot of these things. And so there's tons of uh, positions, debates given that sway Christians that are actually unbiblical. I've seen Christian after Christian post, you know, on social media, some quote from a Native American tribes leader that says something like, you know, we need to care for Mother Earth and respect her because she provides for us and things like that. And they'll caption it with uh, amazing how non-Christians get this and the church doesn't, right? It sounds good. They're trying to say we shouldn't abuse the environment, but then they're accidentally endorsing pantheonism, right? They're accidentally using a non-biblical worldview to kind of get it across their point. And they're blurring the lines of creator and all of creation, right? And so the Bible will show us first and foremost, God created and everything else is creation, right? There's God, a hard line, and then all of creation. And he's the one who actually gets to tell us how we deal with his creation. Second thing that it shows us is that God has created an abundant and resourceful earth. He is not a bad creator, okay? God is infinitely perfect, right? He's a good creator. He's not a bad creator. He doesn't create a weak uh, world and again, this will be important, uh, important later because there's a, a lot of the fear that comes from environmental issues is this idea that creation's super weak and we're just destroying it by every move we make. But the Bible teaches us God is the creator and he's a good creator. So that's the first element, simply that God is the creator, creation is his, he gets to tell us how we deal with his creation in the scriptures. Second element of this biblical worldview is the creation mandate. Genesis 1, 25 through 29. And God made the beasts of the field according to their own kinds and the livestock according to their own kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in his image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and on every living thing that moves on the earth. So God said, behold, I am, I've given you every plant yielding its seed on the face of the earth uh, for all of the earth, every tree in its fruit, you have them for food. In that next chapter, Genesis 2.15, and God took, them, took man and placed them in the garden to work it and keep it, keep it. So what does this teach us? First of all, man is kind of the crescendo of creation. You see this trajectory. He creates uh, the world, he creates the plants, he creates the animals, and all of a sudden creates man in his own image to rule over the rest of creation. So man, in a sense, is the crowning achievement of creation made in God's image, which shows us by implication, man is more important than the rest of creation. Sounds pretty prideful, right? Environmentalists would say, who do you think you are that you're so important, better than the rest of creation, right? But the Bible show man is actually the crowning achievement of God's creation. It sounds prideful, but if you deny that, it's actually false humility, right? I'm not better than any of the rest of creation. I'm just another, you know, creature on God's earth. That's not what the Bible teaches. Right, man is made in the image of God to work and keep it. We even see uh, the president of PETA, Ingrid, sounds like the president of PETA, uh, name your kid Ingrid. There's no rational basis for saying that human beings have any special rights. A rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy. They're all mammals. 
Right, but God is saying, that's, that's not what I, I intended man for. Right? I created you in my image to work and keep my creation, to have dominion over the birds and over the fish and all those different things. So again, this isn't saying man abuses creation, but it is saying creation is for man or humanity, not the other way around, not man for creation. Let me just give you a few biblical uh, Uh, Proof text here, Leviticus, the whole book, uh, God commands man to kill thousands of animals to atone for his sin. So man sins, and instead of that man dying for his sin, God says, take two turtle doves or an ox or whatever and sacrifice it on your behalf. Jesus, time and time and time again says, uh, are you not of more value than different animals? Matthew 10, 29 through 30, are two sparrows sold, or are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than sparrows. So there you go, Jesus said it. I don't want to hear any more debate about it, okay? You're of more value uh, than sparrows. This is how God has designed his creation, made you in the image of God to rule over the rest of creation. This doesn't mean that every desire that you have is good, again, not abuse, but it does mean uh, that you are of more value. It wants to care for animals, but not worship animals, not, not uh, switch the uh, creation order. So that's the next thing. Uh, Man is, uh, the next thing we see is man is meant to subdue creation. He put him in the garden to work it and keep it, have dominion over it. We see this word for dominion means kind of to dominate, uh, to bring into servitude. It's the same word that Israel is told uh, to do to the land of Canaan, have dominion, right? Kick out all the bad and take uh, this land, subdue it so that everyone can look and worship Yahweh, things like that. Similar, the same word is used for man taking dominion over creation. So man is put in creation to use it, to improve upon it, to use its resources for his own good, for humanity's own good, and for God's glory. Okay, man is put there to use the garden of Eden. God is saying, make use of it. I made this for you, right? You have dominion over all of creation. It's meant to be enjoyed with thanksgiving, right? Not shame, but actually we praise God because he's given us these good gifts, Right? That's why the resources are there in the first place, so that man can use them in a way that glorifies God. Right? So this means we shouldn't view the development of uh, goods and things like that as something bad, as most environmentalists do, but rather as something good. Right? You're acting, you're obeying the creation mandate. If you cut down a bunch of trees to build a building, that's good. Right, there's this great tree that's there and you want to build a chair, cut it down and build a chair. That's you acting uh, in the image of God and then a tree will grow back. Right? God's so great. You know, resources just keep coming back. Right? If you burn wood to warm yourself, if you use sand to make a computer chip, I didn't even know that was possible, but apparently it is. I mean, technology is crazy. Right? That's, that's what God has meant for us to act in the image of God. Just because something can be misused just because abuse can exist doesn't mean the thing itself is bad, right? Just because there's animal abuse doesn't mean we should all be vegan, right? It just means you should get rid of the abuse, right? Use the resources uh, well, right? Volkswagen, a couple years ago, Volkswagen, the car company, I didn't know if you knew what Volkswagen was, wanted to clarify, um, made a diesel car that they marketed as the most environmentally friendly car in the world, but really what they built was the uh, most environmentally damaging car in the world and then implanted a deception device in the car to trick all the things that read kind of the outputs and all that. So 
shocker, Germans did something sketchy. Uh, just because there's abuse doesn't mean we you know, say, okay, well, no more cars because of Volkswagen, right? You don't make that step. So we don't say stop acting like those made in the image of God. Stop taking dominion over the earth. Stop subduing the earth because abuse exists. We just say, get rid of the abuse, right? And that's the next point. Man is meant to care for creation. So man is meant to subdue creation and man is meant to care for creation. We see those two errors. One would be the worship of creation, right? This idea that man is meant to serve creation, kind of what we've been talking about. That's, that's what's most popular in our culture. We're here to serve creation. And then the other is the abuse of creation, something just as much unbiblical. Man is meant to serve or uh, care for creation, not serve it. Uh, so again, Bible talks about how he wants to, God wants us to care for animals, Exodus 20, 10. But, on the, uh, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work, nor your sons or your daughters or your male servants or your female servants or your livestock. Your animals get a break, so you care for your animals or the sojourner that's within your gate. Proverbs 12, 10, whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast. Okay, you're meant to care for animals, meant to care, meant to care for creation. Again, this idea of using creation but not abusing. Okay, use, not abuse. These two things will be pitted against each other in much of the environmentalist worldviews that to use is to abuse. So the environmentalists would say, and the Bible says, no, no, you use, but in a way that glorifies God and benefits your fellow man. So again, we care for the earth, not because it's our mother earth who provides for us, right? But because we're good stewards. We want to be good stewards of what God has given us. We want to glorify God. We want to do this in a way that provides for us and for future generations. We're motivated not just by love of God, but love of neighbor as well, right? Those are our motivations as those who believe in the creator, not, not, uh, not creating a false idea between creator and creation, but rather doing it all for the creator as well. So you use the earth not in a wasteful way, right? You don't treat animals intentionally with cruelty. You don't intentionally pollute or anything like that. Uh, but rather in a caring way, right? We should op- oppose abuse, right? We're, we've been put here to keep the earth. And so when we see abuse, we should oppose it, but we shouldn't say, okay, I'll stop acting. I'll, I'll start disobeying the creation mandate because abuse exists. So that's the second thing. Create in the image of God to work and keep the garden, take dominion over God's creation. Third element of this biblical worldview is the fall, sin, so fun. Okay, Genesis 3, 17 through 19. And to Adam he said, he being God, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded, uh, which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain shall you eat of it in all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall, shall it bring forth for you and you shall... Uh, eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. From dust you are, to dust you shall return. So, women get pain in childbirth. Men get, you know, some thorns are going to come out of the ground when you're pulling weeds, right? Same, same, right? That's, that's equal punishment. So we see the fall here. What does this teach us? Creation is now naturally broken. Creation is naturally 
broken. Again, this is going to be important because environmentalists view the you know, natural world, that that's what's best, right? Untouched nature is what's best. But here the Bible is going to say what we see, right? We all live post-Garden of Eden. We all live post-Genesis 3. What we see as natural is God's broken creation, right? It's not how God created it. It's not the garden. Rather, we live in a world with thorns and thistles, Right, which is kind of a you know, summary statement for more than just weeds. It's poetic language for floods and hurricanes and droughts and poisonous uh, plants, venomous snakes. Jeff would probably say tiny lizards came after the fall. You know, they're normal size before, I guess. They shrunk and got more scary, uh, according to Jeff. So what is natural to us is not always good, right? So God wants us to improve on this. He wants to improve us, us to improve on broken creation, Right? In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve can sleep under a tree, cuddling a lion, naked. Right? Now, we need clothes in a house and not cuddling a lion, because right? it would eat you. Right? There's a difference between garden and the Garden of Eden and now. So we improve on broken creation. We build flood walls right, to keep uh, hurricanes from coming in and destroying cities and stuff like that. So we improve on broken creation. What is natural is broken. And not only is creation itself broken, right, bringing forth thorns and thistles, but also man's heart is now sinful. This is super important. You should expect there to be environmental issues, right? The world is broken. Thorns and thistles will come forth from it. But you should also expect someone without a biblical worldview to offer solutions that are also sinful, right? Someone who doesn't believe that God is the creator and created all things to be used by man, if they see an environmental problem and they go to address it, that's coming from a sinful heart, right? There's a morality that's coming from a sinful heart. There's emotional reactions that come from a sinful heart. So when you look at the activists, right, the people who really care about these issues, you shouldn't just expect, oh, they care about it, therefore they must be right, right? This applies to environmentalism, this applies to social justice, whatever. If they're not Christians, if they're not seeing with a biblical worldview, that's also coming from a sinful heart. So the fall not only breaks creation, it also breaks the solutions to that brokenness in creation, if that makes sense. So that's important clarifier. There's this kind of unspoken assumption that if, you re- if you're really passionate about this, if you're loud enough, then you're equally, or you're just automatically right. That's not the case, right? You might, that loudness might be even more from a broken heart, something like that. So, so the solutions to these problems are also gonna come from a broken heart. Third thing, the goodness of creation isn't destroyed, rather it's mixed with thorns and thistles. God's good creation isn't totally wiped away, now it's just mixed with sickness and with death, thorns and thistles, with destruction, these things. First Timothy 4.4, 4, everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received from thanksgiving. So good, God's good creation isn't removed, it's just now mixed with thorns and thistles, that's important. And then fourthly, the fall does not remove the creation mandate. The fall does not remove the creation mandate. The curse that God brings on the earth in Genesis 3, notice actually God brings it, makes the creation mandate more difficult and more painful. It does not remove the creation mandate. Does that make sense? Adam and Eve are told to do the exact same thing that they were told in the garden, post-Genesis 3, it's just gonna be more difficult, right? You're still filling the earth, right? You're still having kids. It's just gonna be really painful, Eve, sorry about that. And you're still subduing it. There's just gonna be thorns and thistles now. Just the Great Commission is now mixed with difficulty and pain. 
right? It's not that they're unable to do it, it's just that it's going to be painful. It doesn't remove it, it doesn't make it something bad, it doesn't change the character of the creation mandate. Environmentalists will say that by you going out and subduing the earth, you're just breaking creation. They're saying it, it in and of itself is bad. That commission by God is a bad thing. You need to disobey that and serve the earth, you know, r- remove your carbon footprint, things like that. But what the scripture is going to say is that creation mandate doesn't become bad, it just becomes difficult just becomes painful. It's mixed with thorns and thistles and things like that. We see man continues to subdue the earth after the fall. We see Noah's given the exact same great commission after the flood to fill the earth, uh, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Psalm 8, four through eight. What is man that you are mindful of him? You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. This is post Genesis three. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Again, repeating this early Genesis language. New Testament also shows us, you know, eating animals is morally right. We see, again, this is all post Fall, so it doesn't remove the creation mandate, just makes it more difficult. That's the third thing, the fall. And then the fourth and final element of this biblical worldview that is so vitally important for your anxiety is God's redemption of creation. God's redemption of creation. Creation is included in God's plan of redemption. Romans 8, 19 19 through 22. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. Then Isaiah 51, talking about the new heavens and new earth, for for the Lord comforts Zion, He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like the garden of Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song, right? Creation is included in God's great plan of redemption. Every single thing that is broken in the fall, God redeems. God leaves nothing undone. There's no sin you could ever do so great that God's redemption doesn't cover it. There's no brokenness that his redemption doesn't heal, right? And creation is included in that. We often don't think about this. We say this world is not our home. We sing just a few more weary days and then I'll fly away, right? I'll fly away, I'm getting out of here. We're escaping, but that's not, that's not the image the Bible gives, right? God is rather redeeming creation. He's gonna give you, right? We're not souls going off into heaven forever. He's giving you a glorified body, a physical body, and you're gonna reign in the new heavens and new earth, Right, God is redeeming creation. It's included in his plan of redemption. So what else does this show us? It shows us God is in total control. Right, we are not meant to be people of fear. We're meant to be a people of hope. We're meant to know that even though you know, there might be a, a very popular idea that humans being humans is doing nothing but destroy the earth and we better stop in the next decade or we're all gonna die or something like that, actual things that are being said, Right? We know that's not true, right? God is in control, redeeming the creation, right? It's a part of it, right? So we shouldn't fear obeying the creation mandate. What else does this teach us? We should see renewed creation as something good, right? As we pray, Lord, come quickly, 
that is kind of included in that great cry. Lord, come, uh, I want a new <laughs> glorified body with no more tears, no more suffering, right? A new creation and a new earth will, will dwell eternally with you. That's included in, God, in this great call for God to redeem all things. And then lastly, we know how the story ends. What does this mean? It means we know how the story ends. This, story, this great doomsday that everyone is worried about we know biblically that great, great doomsday is our savior returning, taking away all the bad and making everything, all things new. Right? Why would we ever approach that with fear? We know that God is absolutely in control and he's bringing about all the things we could ever hope or dream for. That's the end for us, right? When people say the end is near, we say, great, please, Lord, come quickly. That's our cry as Christians. This idea that the world doesn't end because humans ruin it and we all drown or something like that, but the world ends because God ends it. And he judges all of his enemies and we all enter into eternal fellowship with him and his kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth, right? We're meant to be people of hope and joy. The end days are meant to be a thing of, uh, something of great encouragement. Revelation is meant to be an encouraging book, right? We all often approach it with fear, but it's meant to be this encouraging thing saying, no matter the situations you're facing, your God is absolutely in control. Right, and that especially applies here, especially with things like climate change where there's so much fear charged in. We know that God is in control. He's redeeming all things. So those, that, that's kind of the central element of the biblical worldview in facing all of these issues. God is the creator, that creation-creator distinction, right? He is the creator. Everything belongs to him. He puts you and I, right, man, in his creation to work it and keep it as people made in his image, right, to create, right, to, to, to improve upon his creation so that people would look at us and say, wow, who is your God? I have to worship him. There's the fall, it's broken, that it doesn't remove that creation mandate, just makes it more difficult, just enters thorns and thistles, and then lastly, everything that we've broken from the fall, God is fixing, Everything, all all the sinful things we do, all the abuse of creation that we could drift towards, God is redeeming. That is the central biblical worldview that we have to have when looking at environmental issues. So, what are some general uh, environmentalist worldviews that kind of clash with that? I'm going to give you three kind of big, broad assumptions that most environmentalists will make. First one, Untouched nature, this idea that uh, untouched nature is the ideal, it's the highest good, it's the most pure, it's what is best, right? So you say, don't clear a forest because that kills trees. Don't build a house, don't, don't clear a forest to build a neighborhood, you're going to kill trees, you're going to kill some squirrels that are in there, some, uh, you know, bugs and stuff like that, right? That is what's best, what's already there is what's best, and you're just going to come mess it up, bring destruction, and then put your house up because you're so selfish, right? That's the assumption. Uh, don't build hydroelectric dams because it kills fish. Don't build windmills because they kill birds, right? All this idea that what is already there, nature, untouched nature by you and I is what is best. That's the assumption. What does that contradict the biblical worldview? God says er, subdued nature is the ideal. Right? Environmentalists would say untouched nature is the ideal. God says no, subdued nature is the ideal, God says, I created the world untouched, and then I created man and said, go touch it, right? Go subdue it, fill the earth and subdue it, all of it, and bring it uh, under your dominion, right? That's God's ideal. God creates animals without any names and then tells Adam, go name them, right? You call a lion a lion because Adam named it. Adam subdued, right? He named it a lion, uh, there's a pastor in, in Charlotte, North Carolina, an author named Kevin DeYoung, who says this about this subject. I would argue 
that Christians should not be seeking a romantic ideal where the earth is, earth is untouched by human hands. Rather, we want to think carefully about how we can use our hands to make the earth more inhabitable for people so that we might enjoy beauty, the beauty, grandeur, creativity, and productivity of our Father's world. Right? That's the exact ideal. You subduing nature is God's ideal, not this untouched nature. And so this untouched nature leads to this idea of world worship, of blurring the distinction between creator and creation. You see this a lot with you know, this appeal to be grateful to Mother Earth for her uh, pr- provision for us, this idea of kind of personifying the world something uh, rather than seeing it as something created by God. Environmentalist Mary Nichols says this, or Nicholas says this, Earth Day was not just about pollution of our air and water, it also is about recognizing that we share a common interest in nature. We do not own nature, rather she owns us, and we need to give her respect. Pope Francis, oh, the great father himself, says this on, uh, I think it was last Earth Day, uh, head of the Catholic Church. We have failed to care for the earth, our garden home. We have failed to care for our brothers and sisters and we have sinned against the earth, against our neighbors and ultimately against our creator, our benevolent father who provides for everyone and de- uh, desires us to live in communion and flourishing together. And how does the earth react? The earth does not forgive. If we have despoiled the earth, it resp- its response will be very ugly. And when we see natural tragedies uh, that are the earth's response to our mistreatment, I think if I ask the Lord now what he thinks about it, I do not believe he is saying that it is a very good thing. The prophetic gift of contemplation is something that we can learn, especially from the indigenous people, actual pantheists, the indigenous people. They teach us that we cannot heal the earth unless we love it and respect it. And they have, wisdom, they have the wisdom of living well. Not in the sense of having a good time, no, but in living in harmony with the earth. So you see that sort of earth personification mixed with uh, God as the creator and then actual appeal, <laughs> appeals to the indigenous people, actual pantheists who worship Mother Earth. Uh, and that's his lesson to the billions of Catholics in the world, right? We love and respect the earth. We've sinned against it, all these different things. Now, do I think Pope Francis is a pantheist? No. But do I think, he think he's thinking biblically? No. He's seeming to drift into what might sound good. It sounds nice to say, oh, this tree gave me an orange and it tastes so good. This tree is so great. Instead of saying, God made this thing grow out of the ground that makes these little circle things that taste good to me come out of its leaves. I don't know how trees work. Um, Right? And so you see this kind of blurring of the line of creation and uh, creator. So how does this contradict with the biblical worldview? Obviously, we don't want to worship anything that's not God. It's kind of key for us as Christians. And then secondly, we care for the environment because we're motivated by love of our creator and love of nature, or love of our brother, not worship of Mother Earth. We are motivated by our love for our good God who has provided for us and our brothers and sisters, not by love for Mother Earth itself. Creation is just simply a gift from God, not something in and of itself. And then thirdly, this idea of uh, untouched nature leads to this, uh, this closely held belief that humans, you and I, are destroying this pure nature. You're the problem with the world, according to environmentalists. The world's doing just fine on its own, and then you showed up, and you just messed everything up. So this is true in a sense, 
right? In, in the fall, we know we've sinned and broken. Creation, thorns and thistles came out. Painful childbirth came because of sin. But what environmentalists mean is by you obeying the creation mandate, you're breaking the world, right? You're ruining the world by actually obeying what God says to go do by filling the earth and subduing it. So there's this idea, this assumption that the earth is the healthy organism and that people are kind of the cancer cells. We're just destroying it as we go. The world would be better off without us. We just pollute and destroy and just take for ourselves. It's kind of like every robot movie ever made when like man makes a robot. And they're like, this will be great for humanity. They'll help, you know, with all the stuff. And then the robots are like, I know what will help with all the stuff. Remove the humans. Okay, yeah, that's kind of how environmentalists see the world. If we just got rid of all the people, we minimize our footprint, uh, everything would be great, right? The world wouldn't be uh, plagued by us anymore. We just simply consume in their mind. We're just consuming all of its resources. Uh, Paul Watson, who's an environmentalist, calls humans the aids of the earth, right? Thanos, the bad guy in the Avengers movies, the Mr. Purple guy, uh, what's his big claim? universe is way too populated. Right? That's his weird evil plan. He's like, there's too many people. Right? He's an environmentalist. The universe can't sustain this many people. So he goes and finds all these stones, snaps his fingers and wipes out half the population so that the universe can be free. Right? He was an environmentalist. In environmentalist views, Iron Man and Captain America are the bad guys. Right? They're the ones who care about humanity. Psh, Thanos is the one who's got his mind right, focusing on the universe. Right? You need to get rid of these people that are destroying it. So what does this contradict with the biblical worldview? Obviously, we've talked about this already, what is natural is broken. Right? It's a post-Genesis 3 world that we live in. What is natural isn't necessarily the most pure or the most right. Rather, it is good for us to improve on broken nature. We were created as God's crowning achievement, not as a parasite. Right? The, the creation story shows all of creation made and then finally humanity is made to take care of and, and improve upon the rest of the creation, not to destroy it. So though there can be harmful things, again, this doesn't remove the creation mandate and also doesn't mean that humans can do incredible things, can make incredible advance, advancements for uh, lessening pollution and clean drinking water and things like that for people, right? We're called to be good stewards of God's earth and we're called to enjoy it. Right? We're called to uh, develop on fallen creation. So that's kind of the first biggest assumption that uh, untouched nature is what's best. We see that that really does conflict with what God says in his scriptures. Second big assumption that we see is essentially just flipping the creation mandate on its head, saying man is made for the earth rather than the earth for man. So the first thing we see is man is here to serve creation. That's our purpose. Again, Paul Watson, the guy who called uh, humanity the AIDS of the earth says, here's how we should fix uh, the environment. We need to reduce our population to one billion. Sounds like Thanos. Uh, reduce our population to one billion. I don't know how he suggests doing that. And then we need to live in communities of 20,000 max. And then we need to have giant wilderness between each community if we want to sustain the earth, right? That's humanity serving creation. Somehow we're going to reduce our numbers big time, have less kids, or actually, you know, politicians calling, you know, people in uh, the United Kingdom to have less kids. That's the best thing you can do for the environment. Less mouths to consume uh, the earth, right? That's man-serving creation. Greta Thornburg, the Swedish teenager who should not be a leading voice in environmental issues, but somehow has been made this leading voice because she yells at people and things like that. She was Time Magazine's Person of the Year, said about uh, reducing carbon emissions. 
Uh, we must forget about net zero. We need real zeros starting now, meaning shutting down the world's economy as we know it. Right now, every company and every nation shut down all your factories, no more cars, no more planes, stuff like that, right? So most of these suggestions you'll notice come at a massive, massive human cost, right? Because they have it flipped. We're made for creation, and it's typically always the poor that suffer the most, right? Shutting down the world's economy would affect the poor most of all. Right, so uh, Bjorn Lomberg, who's a respected Danish, environment, uh, Danish environmentalist and professor of statistics, held uh, several meetings called the Copenhagen Consensus, where they assumed global warming was happening, man-made global warming was happening, global warming was happening, hap oh my goodness. Do you have any coffee I could have? Apparently I, um, I assumed man-made global warming was happening and that it was harmful. And then they asked, what's the best possible human response to this. And this is their conclusion. For some of the world's poorest countries, which, have, uh, which would be adversely affected by climate change, problems of HIV and AIDS, hunger and malaria are more pressing and can be addressed uh, more effectively. And in fact, they further concluded that uh, using funds for those countries on global warming would be the worst use of uh, their funds, right? The poor don't care about global warming when their kids are starving, right? These third world countries couldn't care less about you know, carbon emissions or whatever when they need to feed their families today, right? It's kind of a luxury for the rich. Uh, Bjorn Longberg, by the way, just wrote a book last month that's entitled False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. So he kind of shows his cards there. Uh, but he's an environmentalist. So again, this comes at a, a massive human cost a lot of the time because, again, we're here to serve creation. It's flipping of the uh, creation mandate. God, rather, will tell us, you're the crowning achievement of creation and you're to go use the earth. That's what I'm commanding you to do. Go everywhere and use it all for your benefit and for my glory. Right? Fill the earth and subdue it. Environmentalists say, don't fill the earth and don't subdue it. Right? It's the total opposite of uh, the great uh, creation mandate. Right? And it even encourages guilt. When you are driving your car or whatever, you should feel guilty about it because you're doing nothing but hurting creation. Rather, what God is saying is, I want you to feel joy. I've given you these gifts for rejoicing, right, for thanksgiving, right? total flipping of the creation mandate. And in fact, uh, mostly man obeying the creation mandate has actually helped environmental issues more than anything else. It's in the most developed nations where there's the least amount of pollution and things like that. It's in developing nations where there's the most, but then the solution is for them to continue to develop technology, continue to act as those created in the image of God, not stop those things. So, yeah, creation for, or caring for creation doesn't mean that you serve it, but rather you are a good steward of it in a way that glorifies God. Right? This isn't to say that there can be abuse. Sin is always going to be crouching at the door, waiting for abuse. Again, our hearts are bent towards sin, but that doesn't mean we abandon, we, we disobey God's rules. Rather, if you are running a plant that produces a whole lot of waste, instead of dumping it in the sea and killing, it all, and killing all the fish or whatever, just find a wise way to dispose of the waste, right? Act as those made in the image of God and just do it in a way that cares for creation as well. So that's the first, creation is actually over man. And then again, that other element is animals are actually over man, 
right? Uh, the using of animals, killing animals for food or clothing or anything, anything like that, scientific advancement is viewed as immoral. It's hard to kind of nail down their definitions though. Uh, they often have different value systems. When I was in Australia, they're very environmentally conscious, the Aussies, they love the environment. Uh, and there's a big old snake, literally an eight foot long snake that came down our alleyway and pecked on one of our windows and we were gonna kill it. And then one of the local Aussies told us, you can't kill any snakes, you'll get heavily, heavily fined. Even if it's poisonous, even if it's deadly, you can't kill anything, right? Because it's an animal, right? But, but, there were these beetles that the Aussies do not like. And so they imported a whole bunch of toads years ago to kill all the beetles. And what happened to the toads? They were attracted to one another and they multiplied. And now there are thousands and thousands of these toads everywhere. And the government begs you to swerve your car and run them over. I'm not kidding. Like actually is begging you to kill off these toads, right? So that when something becomes a nuisance, their value system shifts a little bit. So that's kind of hard to nail down. But some general examples would be you can't kill uh, mosquitoes, right? Because it's though they carry malaria and in certain places of the world kill millions of people, it's, it's a living insect, right? You don't kill those things. Uh, several years ago in the San Joaquin Valley in California, it's one of the most fertile areas in the world, uh, produces a lot of the world's food a lot for our nation. There was uh, some environmental relegations that this tiny little fish called the Delta smelt was endangered. And to save it, they diverted all the water that was gonna come uh, through the San Joaquin Valley into the Pacific Ocean. They did save the fish, but then all the crops uh, died. There was a massive food shortage and uh, unemployment in that area rose to 40%. So again, a massive human cost to save this, this little fish. Fish are great. But again, they're not over man, this tiny little fish. So where does this contradict, again, a biblical worldview? Animals are here for man. It's good and pleasing to God for us to act as those created in his image, subduing the earth to eat meat. You can be a vegetarian for health reasons. You can't be one for biblical reasons if you think it's better. Right? To eat meat, to use animal for, animals for clothes, God's actually the first one to clothe Adam and Eve, right? Genesis 3, 21, God made Adam, uh, God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them, right? Uh, you can develop spray to kill mosquitoes. That's fine, you're subduing creation. Yesterday, my little sweet, chunky, beautiful child turned one and uh, I was getting ready for a birthday party and I was pulling weeds. I was subduing the thorns and thistles in my front yard and apparently in a tiny little bush, there was a wasp nest that I wasn't aware of. I didn't know wasps, I thought they did it on your roof where you could see them, but they were hiding. And so I pulled something and they all flew out. And though I am an athlete, I have lightning fast reflexes, I got stung. The wasp has faster reflexes and so I got stung on my finger and I went off on those wasps. I got a baseball bat, I hit the, no, I'm just kidding, but I did get spray and I subdued those wasps because it wasn't out of vengeance, it was because there were so many children coming over, I didn't want them to get stung as well, right? That's a good thing to go and subdue creation. That's me, I was perfectly obeying God's creation mandate. And again, man, animals are more important, or uh, man is more important than animals. Are you not more valuable than sparrows, Jesus says. Are you not more valuable than the delta smelt, he would probably say to all the Californians who diverted the water. So that's the second thing, this flipping of creation mandate. We see that contradicts what the Bible says about how we should view these issues. And then finally, emotional and fearful approaches to these issues. Firstly, we see environmentalists typically 
by typically I mean always, appeal to emotion to win people over to their position. What seems the most loving, what seems the most caring is what people typically try to use. Uh, Zach, in his book, we have an author among us, uh, uses this example of Sarah uh, McLaughlin. I'm sure you've seen her puppy commercials where there's just this horribly sad song, in the arms of an angel, I think it is, as it's just panning across all these abused dogs. And what's the message? There's an animal abuse, so adopt a puppy. Right? You can adopt all the puppies you want. I'm pro, I can't do it, I'm allergic, but I'm pro you adopting puppies. But the assumption is because you feel bad about this abuse, right? Using emotions to manipulate you. Maybe you're allergic like me and you shouldn't adopt puppies, things like that. Uh, but again, that's the appeal to emotion. They'll show a picture of a chopped down forest with no words and it'll just be, the assumption is, look at the destruction that man causes, right? This hyper appeal to emotion, climate change, it's often, don't you care about humanity, right? This idea of, aren't you a caring person? If you were, surely you would agree with this. Uh, again, Greta Thornburg, our, our Swedish teenager, uh, spoke, she was invited to speak at the UN uh, Climate Action Summit. Again, I don't know why, but she was. And this was her speech. Tell me if, if you feel this is a bit emotional. Uh, this is all wrong. I shouldn't be here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet all of you come to us young people for hope. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with empty words, and I'm one of the lucky ones. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We're in the beginning of mass extinction, and all you can do is talk about money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? You are failing us, but the young people are starting to understand your betrayal. The eyes of all future generations are upon you, and if you choose to fail us, I say we will never forgive you. Oh my goodness. I will let you, we will not let you get away with this. I am terrified right now. All future generations are watching. Okay, so obviously that's just, that's emotion. There's no substance there. There's no arguments for why we should care about climate change. We just know that all the kids are mad at us now. And if we mess up, somehow they're never gonna forgive us. So we need to be careful, right? This is just highly, highly emotion, uh, emotional language. And then uh, obviously it's very politically charged because uh, climate change in particular is being passed as kind of the only moral imperative in our postmodern world that's being used as a political tool quite a bit. And if you push back against it, similar to if you push back against Black Lives Matter in any way, uh, you're viewed as a racist. Here, if you push back against these kind of scare tactics, you're viewed as uneducated or a, uh, you know, a client or a climate denialist or just a hater of humanity. I mean, how else could you not care about these things? In fact, uh, this journal or this uh, lifelong environmental scientist named uh, Roger Peelke, can you say that maybe? Uh, he released a report saying that uh, natural disasters are not getting worse. And he's a very progressive Democrat, you know, environmentalist. And uh, a big uh, environmental claim is that because of global warming, because of climate change, these natural disasters are getting so, so much worse. I mean, Hurricane Harvey, that's who we named our kid after, uh, destroyed all of Houston. Uh, and, and because of that, he was raked through the coals and basically his career has totally almost gone away. His reputation was threatened, things like that, just because he released a report saying they're actually not getting worse. So there's a lot of fear with speaking out against it. Uh, you're highly, highly encouraged to go with your gut right? Doesn't it just feel wrong to use the earth, right? Just doesn't it feel that way? It's just all emotion. So again, biblical worldview, emotions aren't bad, but when they're used to manipulate away from truth, they're bad, right? When they're used to manipulate you, and then uh, Christians are never 
people who go with their gut. We have a higher authority above us than our feelings, right? In fact, the Bible tells us time and time again, don't trust your feelings. You are sinful. What you think naturally is gonna be sinful. You have to be transformed by the renewing of your mind in the scriptures, right? So we don't go with our gut. So emotion, and then secondly, probably the biggest thing, fear is used to win people to their positions. Uh, There's a tremendous amount of fear that's used to sway people. Uh, Again, it comes this idea that the world is incredibly fragile um, and that we're just destroying it every move we make. Uh, Again, very politically charged. Uh, Environmentalist Norman Myers wrote a book called The Sinking Ark. Don't know what he's referencing there. Uh, The Sinking Ark, where he estimated that we lose uh, 40,000 species every year. And people have tried to hunt down where he got this statistic and they can't, so the conclusion is he must have just made it up. But Al Gore repeated it, which made it incredibly popular, this idea that 40,000 species, endangered species, are dying every year. Another professor uh, at Stanford, uh, Paul Ehrlich, these guys have tough names, uh, claimed back in the 80s that by the year 2000, half the world's species would be gone, and by 2010, all the world's species would be gone. So. Over the past 500 years, uh, the documented rate, the actual numbers that we have, the documented rate of animal extinctions, birds, mammals, reptiles, fish, amphibians, is one. So, uh, Norman missed it by, you know, 39,999. Paul missed it by all the species that there are minus 40, I guess, or however many years it's been since 81. Right, so this is just fear-mongering. This idea that if we don't do something right now, everything's going to die, and then whenever they're, you know, it's kind of like the people who predict the end times, whenever it doesn't happen, don't worry, there's a way to move the goalpost. Uh, so we'll see Al Gore do that in just a second. There's a perceived urgency. We have to do something right now. Congresswoman uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC for short, said, the world is going to end in 12 years if we don't do something about climate change. This is our World War II. Greta Thornburg, again, I want you to panic like your house is on fire. Al Gore, in The Inconvenient Truth, back in 2000, said that by 2014, all of the ice from the uh, Arctic Ocean would be gone, and Florida, New York City, and San Francisco would be underwater. Uh, and it didn't happen, obviously. But then in the sequel that just came out, he was like, everyone made fun of that. Look at this. And he like, showed a bunch of hurricane footage. And we're like, you said it was because all the ice in the world would melt. And he's like... Don't worry about what I said. Hurricanes, climate change, am I right? So moving the goalpost a little bit. Just fear-mongering, right? So I'm not saying, you know, you just say fake news to everything, but I want you to understand when things are just, uh, fear is being used to manipulate rather than, you know, actually having a productive conversation. Media outlets, uh, obviously fear makes great, you know, clickbait. Uh, A lot of special interest organizations exist to look at how horrible the world is going. And so they have a natural incentive to release kind of uh, fearful uh, environmental reports, things like that. Even environmentalists uh, and a professor of environmental biology, Stephen Snyder says this, we have, uh, we have to offer up scary scenarios, make simplified dramatic statements, and make little mention of any doubt that we might have, uh, talking about climate change. Each of us have to decide what, uh, the right balance between being effective and being honest. I don't know why he would ever say that. Just showing your cards again. Just don't tell us that you're not being honest about it. Uh, And then just, again, 
most of this fear is overblown. I don't say that as environmental scientists. I say that as people who are environmental scientists are beginning to speak out like now. Several books are being released in the past couple months. The IPCC, uh, the, climate cha- the panel on climate change used by the UN, released this report recently. It says, in climate research and modeling, uh, we should recognize that we're dealing with a couple of nonlinear chaotic systems. Therefore, long-term predictions about future climate states is not possible. Uh, Michael Schellenberger, a guy who is a well-known environmentalist, he's called Times Magazine Hero of the Year of the Environment. He's been asked by Congress to provide expert testimony on energy use, things like that. Um, he just wrote a book in June, this June, called Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. And I have a big, long quote here from him. Uh, on, on behalf of environmentalists everywhere, I would like to formally apologize for the climate scare we've created over the past 30 years. Climate change is happening. It's just not the end of the world. It's not even our most serious environmental problem. I feel an obligation to apologize for how badly we environmentalists have misled the public. I know this will sound like climate denialism to many people, but that just shows how power the uh, cl- power how shows the power of climate alarmism. There we go. Uh, Until last year, I mostly avoided speaking out against climate scare, partly because I was embarrassed. For years, I've referred to climate change as an existential threat to the human civilization and called it a crisis. But then last year, things spiraled out of control. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said, the world is going to end in 12 years if we don't address climate change. The world's most influential green journalist, Bill McKibben, Uh, called climate change the greatest challenge humanity has ever faced and said it would wipe out civilization. Thus, I've decided to speak out. And uh, and so for my formal apology, uh, excuse me, I've lost my place. Hold that thought. For my formal apology for our fear-mongering comes in the form of a book based on two decades of research and three decades of environmental activism, apocalypse, never. There's actually a pretty large, because the main voices are politicians and news organizations saying that we're all going to die, environmentalists themselves are actually beginning to speak out. There's a a big uh, movement coming out of saying, you know, don't listen to Swedish teenagers, we're not all going to die in two seconds. Okay, so again, where does this contradict a biblical worldview? We're not led by our emotions. We talked about that. We're not to be a people of fear. We're a people of hope. We know God is absolutely in control. The Bible again and again shows God saying, I tell the oceans to stop there and they do it. I control the seed time in the harvest. Right? I'm the one that's absolutely in control. God has created a resilient earth. If a builder told you that your house was good and you went and shut a door and a wall fell down, you would say that builder is a liar. But yet our infinitely good God says, I've created a good world, right? And it's resilient, right? The scriptures show that uh, he creates this world and then says, fill the earth and subdue it. Why would we assume that we would destroy his good world by obeying his commandments, right? God did not design a world that we would destroy by obeying him. He's absolutely in control. He promises seasons and the harvest. So it's important to have uh, a biblical worldview with these things. And just as we wrap up, uh, again, uh, like anything, the way that we're meant to ultimately think about this is just simply by trusting how good our God is. Right? I feel like everything always ends with like, trust God. God's, God's thought about all this. Right? He's, he's thought about it. When we don't think about it and mess it up, he's redeeming it. Right? He's created this good earth for us to enjoy, for us to uh, subdue, 
to give great thanksgiving, to cause worship to well up in our hearts towards him. And then when we fail, he says, I'll redeem that too. Right? In the same way that you can't out the cross, you can't outbreak God's redemption. Right? We have a good and trusting God. And this should, again, create our hearts towards, to turn towards worship. When the whole world is full of anxiety, full of fear, full of emotion, we should be the steady ones. Right, not because we're so awesome, but because our God is, because we can trust that he's thought about all of this before. So, there you go. Let me pray, and then somebody, I don't know who, never mind, it's Jeff, will come up and ask questions. Father, we love you. We do thank you that, uh, though it is good and right for us to use the wisdom that you've given us and think through these issues and try and, and nuance them, we thank you that we can trust you, Lord, that we're not being we- uh, led simply by another a human who might be wrong, we're being led by an infinite God who's given us his perfect word, uh, and uh, we can trust you. We can trust your word. We can trust that uh, a biblical worldview isn't just our best efforts to wrestle with things that are beyond our comprehension, but rather uh, your guidance, Lord, in, in a world that doesn't know you, in a world that is uh, constantly wandering, looking for answers in everything but you, you've given us uh, yourself. You've given us the answers in your words. I just pray that our hearts would be Uh, filled with worship as we think about that reality, that as we face things where we don't know the right answers, we would rest in knowing that you've provided a way in your your word, that your scripture is sufficient, uh, and that we would, again, trust you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your word, and we thank you for your son. In his name I pray, amen.